The word of God is a blessing, so we study it regularly around here. There's a passage before us tonight that we'll have the privilege to pour over. I'll give you the background of it before we get to it. It was the Last Supper. It was literally the Lord's last supper on earth. It happened to be a Passover meal. He celebrated it with his intimate group of followers, of disciples, later to be known as apostles. They were in an upper room in a location in Jerusalem, and much transpired, not the least of which at that dinner, this happened. The Lord revealed that one of those would be his betrayer. You know about this. And he also said other things during the Last Supper, uh, one of which was quite disturbing to the listeners. He said, I'm leaving. He said, I'm dying. I'm going to depart and I'm going to die. I don't think you and I can appreciate the impact that statement had on them. Listen, they were living for the first time with hope. And if Jesus is coming to an end, so too is their hope coming to an end. They saw him to be their king, but they couldn't see why their king would voluntarily suffer and die for others. It just did not compute. Now, you would say it should have because their own scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, told them about a coming suffering servant who would, in fact, die as a substitute for others. But let's not be too harsh with these folks. Though they had that in their background, not the least of which is Isaiah 53. You can read it. Quite a portrayal of the coming suffering servant, even though they had it. Listen, I'm telling you, when they looked lovingly uh, into the face of Jesus, I, it was still so very difficult for them to conceive of the king, their king, being, as they saw it, impaled on a cross and defeated. They didn't understand the glory of the cross at all. They saw it to be defeat and failure, you see. And the Lord was speaking to them about this. He had mentioned to them on more than one occasion, this is what he came to do. He came to live amongst us to eventually die for us. And now at this point in the text, I, I don't think he got impatient yet. He, um, he confronted them with regard to their response. They were distressed. They were troubled. They misunderstood the glory of the cross. And uh, so finally, he, he challenges their reaction. And here it is. You can see it in John chapter 14, verse 28. We just look at a few verses tonight. John 14, verse 28. Look at what he said. You heard. He remembers speaking at this dinner to his disciples. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, well, they did love him. But if you really loved me, is what he says, uh, you would have rejoiced. You wouldn't be distressed. You would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. And then he tells them why this is a good thing. For the Father is greater than I. Can I tell you, if that statement, for the Father is greater than my, uh, I, if that's true, if it means what it clearly seems to mean on the surface, then that means P 
people like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormon people and Muslim people are right about Jesus and we are wrong. If this means what it says, the Father is greater than me, we are deceived about his personhood and those other groups mentioned and many others are correct because they hold to the notion that though Jesus is worthy of respect in some sense, he's a, he's a man. Uh, he might be an extraordinary man, but he's a man, not a God. And, and, and the most they could offer, this would be true of the Watchtower Society, is that you know, he's more than a man, uh, but he's not fully God. He's a lesser God. Now look, if I have offended you because I mentioned those groups, could I... Uh, save you some heartache. Um, I'm only sharing with you what members of those three groups would. I, I'm not editorializing anything. If what I'm sharing is inaccurate, you must correct me, and I will ask for forgiveness. But if what I just said to you accurately represents what those groups believe about Jesus, and you're offended by it, well, then that's your problem. I have nothing to apologize so if they are right, then we have to be wrong, you see, because we say Jesus is in no wise just a man, nor is he even a lesser God. We say he is fully God. Are we right or are we wrong? Now, based upon what we have just read here, um, uh, how in fact could we look one of the members of these other groups in the eye, when they quote that verse, and what do we say? How do we correct them when we say, no, 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 Jesus is not less than the Father? And they say very honorably, they say, what do you mean? He said right here, the Father is greater than I. How would you, how would you respond? Well, that's what we'll talk about for the next few moments. Let me begin by saying, first of all, be sure of this, it's not anyone here who claims that Jesus is fully God and equal to the Father. No, 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 we don't do that. That's what Jesus claims for himself. We are simply repeating what Jesus claims for himself. What audacity we would have to make up something about Jesus that isn't based upon what he himself lays claim to. When we tell people Jesus is God, fully God, we're simply uh, repeating to them what he has clearly uh, stated. For instance, in John chapter 8, we were there, I think, about 39 years ago. In John chapter 8, in verse 56 and on, uh, the Lord Jesus is being confronted by the Jewish religious leaders called Pharisees. He responds to them this way. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. The Jews, therefore, said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly. Which means amen and amen. I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. In so doing, 
Jesus, in effect, told them he is God. Why do I say that? Because he took a name God took for himself in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses met with him at the burning bush and required some information from God for the mission God was sending him on, God said, you tell them, I am sent you. I am indicates a, an existence that has no beginning nor end. Nobody here could lay claim to that term because we all have a beginning and an end except almighty God who does not. God could not possibly have made a stronger declaration of his deity than that to say I am. He has no beginning nor any end. If there's any label that distinguishes God from the rest of us, it's those two words, I am. And Jesus, in John chapter 8, in embracing those two words and applying them to himself, is in effect saying, I am eternal God. He is saying all that you know about God as the great I am, all that is true of me. Now, you would say, well, that's not a claim to deity. <laughs> that's how the Jews in the day took it. Because later in the text, what did they do? They took up stones to murder him for the crime of blasphemy because he was claiming to be God. So, this is a very clear statement of the deity of Jesus. So, whatever is meant by the phrase, the Father is greater than I, it cannot mean that Jesus is a lesser God because that would contradict what he just said in John chapter 8. So, uh, what do we make of that phrase? Well, um, first, let me bolster up the case for the divinity of Christ a little more. This is a claim that he alone did not make. I mean, right at the beginning of this gospel we've been pouring over for quite some time, John, the writer, opens, it's in John chapter 1, verse 1, with this. In the beginning of what? Everything. Before the world was, in the pre-existent state of the universe, in the beginning was the Word. Well, John, tell us a little more about the Word. Well, uh, the Word was with God. I got that. And the Word was God. You got to feast on that. They're different, but the same. The Word was with God. In other words, they're distinct. But the Word was God. They are the same. Now, this begs the question, who is the Word? Well, when you get to John chapter 14, we find out who the Word is. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. What kind of glory? Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that is a claim to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, not by him himself, but by another, by John, who's writing under inspiration. Now this John wrote not only this book we're studying, the Gospel of John, he wrote the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. The same John wrote that one as well. 
And in that book, in chapter 1, verse 8, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, John offers, he records for us, this direct quotation from God the Father. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That statement is not made by Jesus. The context tells us that statement is made by God Almighty. He's calling himself the Alpha and Omega. That's a reference to the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. It's as if God is saying, I have no one who preceded me and no one will succeed me. <laughs> I'm the beginning and the end, just as these two letters are the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet. There's nothing before alpha and there is nothing after omega. So it is with God. I am the beginning and the end of all things. God is saying, I alone is when nothing else was. I always have been and I always shall be. Nothing will outlast me. That's what it means to be God. Now notice, in that same book, the book of Revelation, written by John, at the end of the book, in chapter 22 now, verses 12 and 13, we read this. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Here we go again, same phrase. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, if you examine the context there, you will see it is not God the Father speaking now. It is according to Revelation 22, verse 16, God the Son. Here is my point. Jesus is laying claim to this same title as the Father is the Alpha and Omega. He's saying, so too am I. Now look, folks, you can deny that Jesus is God, but you cannot deny that he claims to be God. So we haven't yet first explained what then does he mean in saying uh, the Father is greater than I. I'm stalling, to tell you the truth. I'm praying for the rapture before we have to get there. You see what I mean? But right now, be sure of this. Whatever it means, it can't mean that he's a lesser God because that would contradict all the rest of what he says about himself. By the way, uh, he is not the only one who uh, lays claim to divinity and refers to himself that way. After his resurrection in John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas, remember him? He's subject to doubts. Thomas exclaimed, my Lord and my God. Paul also, you heard him. He's a guy we ought to listen to. Paul declared also that Jesus is God. And that's what he said in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. He said, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Furthermore, God the Father told us God the Son ought to be worshiped as God. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Jesus laid claim to the fullness of deity 
Others confirmed it, and what's more, he did what is only possibly attributable to God. For instance, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. And he, talking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. You see, he's the visible God who makes known the otherwise invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. No mere man can be attributed with creation. Both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things are. Hold together. Is that, if that is not a reference to the fullness of Jesus' divinity, I don't know what is. Okay, the rapture is not yet come, so we must face the music and try to respond then to the question, if Jesus so unequivocally lays claim to the fullness of deity, what in the world then did he mean by saying, the Father is greater than I? I will offer this. Uh, listen to it, see what you think about it, and if you don't like it, uh, don't tell me. Uh, no, I'm kidding, you, you can. I, I give it my best shot. Listen, folks, in his incarnation, Jesus, in his enfleshment, in his taking on the form of a man, a human, Jesus temporarily laid aside the glory that he shared with the Father from eternity past. In fact, listen to what the Lord will tell us when we get to John 17, verse 5. He says, now, Father, this is his last earthly prayer. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before the world was in eternity past, the Father and the Son shared in the fullness of deity and the fullness of glory, of glory as God. And then the Lord Jesus, in his incarnation, stooped, laid aside in a mysterious way. Uh, to some extent, his divine privileges and prerogatives came here taking the form of man and lived in a humble, even humiliated state. And so he's done that for 33 years. Now he's facing the cross, which from the perspective of the disciples looked like defeat, disaster, and all the rest. But to Jesus, it looked like a restoration of the fullness of the glory with which he shared with the Father from before all time. I will use a big fancy word in case you run into it. Ontologically, that means in terms of his essential nature, he's fully God. But functionally, when he became man, he laid aside the fullness of his uh, divine privileges in order to experience the throes of life. For 33 years, he went through this. It was a hard, really, and bitter existence in many, many ways. He willingly subjected himself to a human body. In other words, he was subjected to fatigue and hunger and thirst and insult and rejection and get this even death how can god die except 
He lay aside his divine prerogatives and assume enfleshment and make himself voluntarily subject to death. For 33 years, he was confined to space. This is the omnipresent God who is everywhere at all times. But Jesus, in becoming enfleshed, confined himself to space. He was locked into a human body. He laid aside his, among other things, omnipresence. And can you see that his glory was diminished? But he's looking forward to the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension so that the fullness of glory, which is his due, would be restored to him in the presence of, of God the Father. The Father is not greater than the Son, ontologically, in terms of essential nature. But the Father is glorified to a greater extent because the throes of human life were not experienced by the Father. The Father remained in the heavenlies. It was the Son who was sent to suffer and die for us. To that extent, there was diminished glory. To that extent, the Father is greater than the Son for 33 years. And then after that, the cross, which the disciples misunderstood. Uh, they saw it to be a horrific end to hope. Oh, no. It was the entree for the Lord Jesus back to heaven. And that's why he said, why are you despairing over this? If you really loved me, you would rejoice. I'm going back to my father. And I'm going to share in the greater glory, which he never lost, but which I voluntarily gave in order to embrace folks like you. And so, uh, as an aside, so too should we, even in the midst of our grief over the passing of a believing loved one, rejoice. We're entitled to our grief, but the Bible says, oh, we need not grieve as if we have no hope. Grief is normal. You do not have to hide your tears or anything. Uh, it hurts to have to say a temporary goodbye to someone you love and value and respect. But you need not grieve with the despair that others do because this believing one also is in a far better situation than here. Whatever disease process it was that took that one's life no longer could lay claim on that person because the Lord has been elevated, now occupies a... Uh, a, a, a body, a glorified body fit for, fit for eternity. And so the Lord is saying essentially the same thing to his disciples. Why are you so gloomy? Why do you think this is a horrific thing? You're looking to the cross from your perspective. Here is mine. There's glory to be restored once I submit myself to the throes of the cross because it won't have the last word. There is the empty tomb which is the evidence of the Lord's resurrection and ascension back to the Father. Now, at the risk of maybe overdoing this, let me uh, ask for some more of your time to develop this theme. How did the Lord set aside his divine privileges? And we don't have all the answers, but there is at least one passage of Scripture that could help. It's Philippians chapter 2. I read to you just a... Uh, Two verses, Philippians 2, verse 6. Who, talking about Jesus, although he existed, the word really means pre-existed, in the form 
of God. Now, the word form in English has two words in Greek. One word for form in Greek is morphe, from which we get the word morphology. Morphology is a, is a biological science that studies the forms of animal and plant life. Morphology is also has to do with the study of words, the form of words. Morphe is one of the Greek words for the English word form. A second is the word schema. Uh, whereas morphe is a reference to the unchangeable nature and form of one, schema is a reference to the changeable appearance of one. Now, I ask you, if you had to guess, which of those two Greek words do you think underlies the word form in Philippians 2, verse 6? Who, although he existed in the, is it the morphe of God or the schema of God? I will tell you, it's the word morphe. And that just slaps Jehovah's Witnesses in the jaw. Because I know you want to do that. It settles it, one Greek word. This is saying, from time immemorial, in his pre-existent state, this Jesus, who you downgrade, this Jesus, according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, existed in the unchangeable, essential, morphe, nature of Almighty God. What's more, the text goes on, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? It means though God, he didn't lay claim to it. He didn't pull rank and he didn't say, what? Condescend? Take on the form of a Jew? Go through all the throes of life? Experience what happens when you occupy a human body? Why should I do that? I am God. Though God, the text says, he didn't regard equality with God. He didn't exploit it. He didn't say, no, I'm God and I won't condescend. Though existing in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He, here's what he did, verse 7 of Philippians 2. He emptied himself. Very interesting. When you think of emptying something, you think of divesting it of its contents. But that's not happening here. He emptied himself, how? Taking on the form of a bondservant. Very interesting. Jesus emptied himself of aspects of his divinity, how? By adding to his essential divine nature the nature of a bondservant. Same word, form of a bondservant, morphe. Though unchangeably, Existing in the essence of God, he stooped so low as to take on the essence of a man, but without sin. That's what this Jesus did. So he laid aside for 33 years his divine privileges, and now it's just about over. And now he's going back to the Father. And then he'll share in the fullness of the glory which is due one who is fully God. And he rebukes his followers and he says, stop weeping for yourselves or for me. If you loved me, you'd rejoice because 
my 33 years of limited expression of my divinity is coming to an end. The cross does not have the final word. Resurrection and ascension follow it. And then I will come back into the glory with which I and the Father shared from before time. Now, the cross did not mean this to his disciples who were looking to it, but it did mean this to the Lord. Furthermore, it meant something else. Verse 29. Now, I have told you before it happens, says he. Why? So that when it happens, you may believe. The second thing about the cross that they missed, not only that it's the entree to the Lord's restored glory, second, it will confirm his words. See, he's telling them about this all in advance. I will be crucified. I will be buried. I will on the third day rise up from death. I will ascend to the Father. And when all those things will happen, they will have no choice but to say, his word is truth. Everything he said has now been confirmed by the fulfillment of what he said. And so, one of the benefits of the cross, he's telling them who are grieving the reality of the cross, he's saying one benefit is that I go home to the Father. The second benefit is that I'm going to give you evidence that my word is true. If I promised it, it's going to happen. And so, he said, I'm going to take the cross and experience it and all that follows it that you may believe. Now, something else happens in verse 30. He says, I won't speak much more with you. He has spent three years doing lots of teaching. Now he's saying it's limited. I won't speak much more with you. Why? For the ruler of this world, it may surprise you to know that that's Satan. Yeah, he's referred to as the ruler of this world. How could that be? Almighty God, our sovereign king, bequeathed a limited uh, authority to Satan to do his various evil deeds here on planet Earth for a time. And so when you lament all of the things happening in this world and wonder how could it be suffering and evil, it's because the world is largely under the influence of the one referred to as the ruler of this world. That's Satan. Now don't get nervous. He as a created being is only allowed to operate to the extent our Father allows him to in a limited way and for a time. Nonetheless, the Lord says, uh, soon I will not be able to say much more to you because the ruler of this world is coming. And furthermore, he has nothing in me. Now, you see that phrase, nothing in me? It's a Greek rendering of a popular Hebrew idiom which essentially meant he has no legal charge against me. He's going to come. How's he going to come? Well, he's going to come through Judas. He's going to come through the Jewish religious leadership. He's going to come at me through the Roman government. Behind all those human vehicles of evil is the evil one, Satan. He will cut short my time here on earth, but it's not because he has any claim to me. How does Satan get a right to a person? Through sin. That's why God hates it. When we sin, we give Satan an opportunity to mess with us. But he had no hold on Jesus because Jesus, though occupying the form of man, never sinned. That's what he means. He has nothing 
in me. Now, why is Satan allowed to operate this way? Verse 31, with which we'll close. But so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Hmm. I love the Father, not just in words, says the Lord Jesus. I manifest my love to him by obeying him. No, no, Satan is not obligating Jesus to the cross. Satan has no such power. Satan could, couldn't bring Jesus to the cross. Jesus chose to go to the cross. He chose to lay aside his glory, which was rightfully his from eternity past as eternal God. Jesus, though God, chose to come here in the appearance of man. Jesus, though God, chose to allow himself to be impaled on a cross. Jesus did all this so that the world may know I love the Father. I want to do what he wants me to do. Satan has nothing to do with it. I lay down my life because that's what the Father sent me to do. His act of dying was not due to Satan's power. It was due to his love for the Father. Satan had no hold on him. And to achieve this great redemption, we read the final phrase in verse 31. He says, come on, let us go up from here. What's he talking about? Remember the venue. They're in an upper room. They're celebrating the Passover seder or meal. It was his last supper. Now there's a change of venue. What, what happened? They leave the room. They go downhill. They're going to make their way across something called the Kidron Valley. They're going to go to a familiar place on the Mount of Olives. The Lord had frequently gone there to pray. It was called the Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane. In order to get there, they'd have to go by the temple. They'd have to cross this Kidron Valley, which during this time of year would have become, would have become kind of a bloody brook. Because up above in the temple precincts, thousands of unblemished lambs would be sacrificed by hundreds of serving priests. All this to provide a temporary atonement for sin. And while all this is going on, and here's this flowing river of sacrificial blood, the ultimate Passover lamb is preparing for his own death the very next day. And he makes his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus looked at the cross, he saw it differently than they did. Have you ever thought about what perception the Lord Jesus had of the cross? They saw degradation and defeat and death. He saw, just to review, four things. He saw a renewal of his glory, number one. Two, he saw a confirmation of his word. Three, he saw in the cross the defeat of Satan, the accuser of the brethren. And fourthly, he saw the cross as a clear demonstration of his love for the Father. This is what Jesus saw when he surveyed the wondrous cross. I ask you a question as I do. John Moore, could you join me, please? That's what Jesus saw when he surveyed the wondrous cross. I must ask this haunting question. What do you see when you survey the wondrous cross? 
I hope you see what is depicted in these magnificent words written by Isaac Watts some time ago when I survey the wondrous cross. Brother John, can you please, John Mark, can you please lead us in this song? And folks, the words will be on your screen, I hope. Yes, me too. <laughs> when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor content on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did there such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown. Now sing it out victorious. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my Lord, we thank you for this evening that we can hear your word clearly. Thank you for Brother Stewart, who is very clear to share with us what you say in your word. Lord, it's amazing how much you loved us to send your only son to die on that cross for our sins. Lord, we thank you for your love, for your protection, for all that you've done for us and continue to do. We pray that we live strong for you. In the shadow of that cross, we love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.